We are, as uh, I will be with you, uh, looking at Jesus' love letters to his churches uh, as found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And uh, today we turn to uh, the second letter that Jesus commissioned to his church, this one at Smyrna. These are seven real historical existing churches, but these letters are to be read by all the churches, and even uh, we are to profit from them today. What's on the heart of the Lord for his people? That's what we learn from these letters, and the kinds of things that ought to be on our hearts, because they're on the heart of Jesus. And so uh, we turn to the second letter, and I would invite you to stand as we hear the word of the Lord to us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that You would grant that this Word would by Your Spirit be laid on our hearts. Mold and shape us. Grant us Your perspective to us in the midst of our own tribulations and pressures. Help us. Give us hope. Speak to us because you're gracious to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you heard in the language of the letter, this is a letter Jesus wrote and commissioned to be sent to a church involved in a great deal of suffering. Jesus speaks into our pain. And he does so in order to give us courage in the face of pain to help us by giving us perspective, his perspective on the troubles that we face, to give us hope, uh, hope, even the hope of glory beyond pain. And so I want you to think about uh, suffering this morning, because that is the subject of this text. Now, you can relate to the believers at Smyrna in their sufferings. They suffer in some ways like us, in some ways perhaps in more extraordinary ways, but they were a people, much like us, who faced pressure from the community for what they believed and stood for. Uh, It was difficult to be a believer there, perhaps more so than here. This is a place uh, that still exists today, uh, in uh, Asia Minor. It's on the West Coast. It's a beautiful uh, city. In fact, in that day, it was considered the first uh, or the most beautiful city. Uh, it uh, was a city of about 250,000 at the time that this letter was written. 
It was famous in its day for its monetary system, for its schools of medicine and science. It had broad main streets and wide tree-lined boulevards, great open-air theater seating 20,000. It it was uh, one step behind Ephesus, which we looked at two weeks ago, one step behind them politically and economically, but it was the most beautiful. It sits on the gulf of the Aegean Sea. It's blessed with an excellent harbor and cool breezes come in off the ocean and life there could be lovely. Except in times of persecution and pressure for being a Christian. And that was the case in their day. Can you relate? Look at the kind of suffering that they experienced. Can you relate to their suffering? I actually think that you can. They suffered five kinds of suffering. They suffered tribulation, it says. I know you're tribulation. That's the, the common word for, for, uh, for pressure, persecution. They felt uh, the weight of their community against them in their beliefs. And it was hard to be a Christian there. Uh, they also faced poverty. Now, this is not the kind of poverty, and there's a word for it, that, that put them at sort of the, the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, barely scraping by in a living, as it were, in a, in a maybe a kind of time of recession where there's no money for luxuries, but they're scraping by. That's not the word here. The word here is destitution. These are folks who have nothing and who live at the hand of charity by others. These are folks as well who have suffered slander. These early Christians, many of them, were primarily converted Jews who even at times left families, who then turned against them for embracing Jesus as Messiah. And you see that in the text, that they had been slandered and and verbally and mentally persecuted uh, by uh, those uh, Jews in that day. And they had suffered prison, not the kind of imprisonment that you and I might go to in the United States of America with air conditioning and television and three square meals a day, but the kind of prison where none of that existed and you might rely upon the generosity of friends and family even to bring you daily bread and they suffered some of them death now i i know that we can't all relate to all of that but do you suffer at all for the sake of christ my my guess is you probably do Uh, students suffer in academic institutions the pressure to remain quiet about what they believe We suffer uh, social isolation at times for belonging to Christ. There are any number of invitations you have never received simply because people know that you are a Christian. Invitations you might otherwise have received. You've been left out of your community in some ways. Perhaps at work you have suffered by not being promoted because of your Beliefs. We suffer loneliness because we're Christians. We suffer the tug of indwelling sin and the constant nag of temptation as Christians, common to all believers. We suffer as we deny ourselves, as we die to ourselves. We suffer uh, the, the temptation of the world, which seeks to force us into its mold. There are innumerable ways in which because you believe in Jesus you suffer, you bear with people you otherwise can't stand 
But you do it for Christ because he says, bear with one another and with each other's weaknesses and you forgive people. And when you forgive them because of what Christ did, you forgive what might be the satisfaction of punishing them for what their sin deserves. But instead, you hold back and you bear, as it were, the punishment that their sin deserves in yourself by not seeking satisfaction. There are so many ways that the people of God suffer. And I want to speak to you today from this text about the perspective that Jesus gives in the face of our sufferings. And he says many things that we don't have time for, but let me highlight six. One that he doesn't say and five that he does. And so let's begin with what he doesn't say, which is an unusual way to begin, but let me say it this way. Jesus does not, he does not connect their sufferings with their sins in this text. And he simply says nothing about their sins in this text, which in some ways is sort of striking. It's not maybe the default mode of some people to think that way. We sometimes think, why am I facing this particular misery? And then we try to track it to some particular sin in our experience. Maybe we've had well-intentioned, but theologically uh, off-the-charts, wildly incorrect folks who've come at us and said, all your trouble in this life is a consequence of your sin. If you would just shape up. If you would just get with Jesus' program, you wouldn't suffer at all because that's God's best life for you. But Jesus doesn't connect their sufferings with their sins. He's silent about it. And, and, and not just in this letter, but the whole structure of the seven letters, had I time to take you through them, emphasizes this point. The normal pattern of these letters is for Jesus to come and tell them about himself. I, I know, I want you to know who I am. Now let me tell you about you. I know this about you. This is what I'm pleased with. And this is what I'm not pleased with. And this is what I want to see changed. And then he counsels them to repent. And he gives them warnings and encouragements and promises of glory to come. That's the normal pattern. But in this letter and in only one other, is there nothing that Jesus criticizes them for? Nothing at all. He's silent on that subject. I think pastorally, he's silent on that subject. It's not that he's looking at an entire church saying, and you all have, have reached glory in this life. Your sanctification is done, and there's nothing I could bring up that could be of help to you. Have you considered this aspect of your sanctification? It's not that he's looking at them that way, but it is that he is withholding any kind of criticism in the face of trying to give them courage and hope in their suffering, which is such a good word for us as we deal with one another and those who suffer. We should be careful. Be very careful. There are times when you can make a direct line from what you are experiencing of the miseries of this life. And the sins that you have committed. My son's been a night in his room this week without supper because of a sin he committed in not doing what he needed to do. He suffered for his sin. And I want him to. <laughs> right? 
As a parent, I love him and I want that hardship to discipline him. Which Jesus does want to do with us sometimes. But not every time can you identify the particular sin. Or is there any particular sin that has brought about your suffering? And so that's the first thing to see. Jesus does not make that connection here. And we should be careful as we consider our own and the experience of others. But here is the perspective Jesus gives, and there are five things. In verse 8, as he begins, he tells them and he brings them to himself. What do you need most of all, or where might you begin, I should say, as you contemplate suffering? Remember Jesus, and that he never takes us in suffering where he has not himself been. And that seems to be what he's reminding of them in in verse 8 when he says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know that some of you are going to be put to death, but I have been ahead of you in that experience of suffering, Jesus says. He's identifying with them. It's it's in some ways uh, a surprising thing. He says, on the one hand, I am the first and the last. That's from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. It's lifted right out of the Old Testament prophet where, the, where it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And you see, he begins here by saying this, I know that you are suffering for me because you've embraced me as your king and the world does not acknowledge me as king. And I know that you're suffering for me, and I want you to know that you are right to do so. It is right, because I am the king. I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. But I have been ahead of you in the experience of pain, Jesus says. Alone among religions here, Christianity is unique, that our God is not far off, not untouched, Not immune from the evils of this life. But he's faced them, he suffered them, he endured them, and he he cannot help but sympathize with you. As as Hebrews chapter 4 says, that we, we have a high priest who is unable, who is not unable to sympathize with us. It's a double negative in the Hebrew. Which... I know in English is improper, but it emphasizes in the Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews, it emphasizes, it emphasizes that Jesus is incapable of not sympathizing with you in the experience of suffering for God. He suffered in every way like us, yet without sin. And so that's where he begins. And that is so helpful because it's so easy to get tunnel vision. As as life collapses around me, I I I I get skittish and jumpy and frustrated and I bluster and I do all kinds of crazy things that I don't like about myself after the fact and as I see in myself as I'm going through it. I don't handle pressure very well. And it's easy to get 
fixated and then turned on me and my experience and how poorly I'm doing. And Jesus begins by saying, I want you to look up at me and see me reigning as king over all. And I've been there before you. Thomas Watson says that when God lays men on their backs, then they look up to heaven. And that is what he is doing with us. Now the second thing I want you to see is in verses 9 and 10. That Jesus knows and can stop our sufferings. But He sometimes chooses not to. That seems to be the emphasis of verses 9 and 10. When He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty. I know all these things. I know what you are about to suffer, He says. I see it coming even if you don't. And not... And so I'm taking it all away. And so I've decided to put an end to it now before you taste it. He doesn't say that. He knows what we are about to suffer and what we are suffering. And He is capable of stopping it. He just said, I'm the first and the last. There is no God beside me. But He sometimes doesn't because He has ordained our suffering. And there is no comfort for you, dear Christian believer, outside of that thought. There is no comfort in the idea that God can help me when I suffer, but He can't keep me from suffering. Because He isn't really in charge of my suffering. Because He really doesn't have the power to do anything about my suffering. That there's some sort of power at work in the universe that's come against me that is, uh, that is, in a sense, divine. Over which the divine one does not have authority and control. You see, that's not what this text is saying. He's supremely in charge of all things and evil is on a rope. It is on a leash. And he organizes it. And he governs it. And He restrains it. And He permits it. And by the end of the book, you know that He will take away all of it from the experience of His people. But in love, in love, out of His own wisdom, He says, in this world you will have trouble. If it were not so, I would have told you. We, we may not understand how is it wise for me to face this thing. But the Father knows how it is wise. Do not, friends, do not let your experience dictate your theology. Let your theology dictate to you about your experience. Do not, do not say, my experience tells me God does not love me. That God is against me and not for me. Let the Gospel tell you what's going on. And the Gospel says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Jesus graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see that? The logic? He he gave you His most precious Son, the pearl of great price. The most expensive thing in the universe. At great cost. Because He loves you. He's not holding back some other good from you. But He is, as 
that text in Romans says, He is working for your good. The Gospel says, Is God being good to me? Yes. Always. Even when I don't like it. There's an elderly man, some of you know him, and he's told this story many times publicly for our encouragement, but he is uh, an elder in another church, and he is a son who in his youth, he says, was a giant in the Christian faith and truth. I mean, he had it all in his head. He knew all the right theological reformed answers, but it was not in his heart. And he grew up, and through college and his early 20s, he rebelled, and he left the church, and he began to live a very outwardly and public immoral lifestyle. In fact, he came to his father, and told him what he was doing. And his father pleaded with him, and, and there was no avail. And eventually his father pressed the church to confront his son, because his son was a member of the church. And he pressed the church to confront his son. And his son said, I don't care what the church thinks. And the church disciplined him. All the way up through excommunication, where they basically said to him, in love, For the good of your soul, you need to understand that we do not believe that you are a Christian. You give every evidence that you do not care about Christ. The goal of that, and some of you maybe not heard of that idea actually being made use of in Christian churches today, it's a glorious idea. It says we love you so much, we've got to take this step. For your sake, for your good, that you might come to your senses. And so this young man was excommunicated, and his father prayed as he had been praying, Lord, I don't care what you have to do, however hard it is, just do whatever will humble him and bring him home safely to Jesus. And the man said, and I will not be bitter, I will not complain, whatever it is. And a year later, his son is fixing a friend's four-wheeler He takes it out for a spin without a helmet on, without his seatbelt on or some such thing, and he flips it, and he breaks his neck, and he becomes a quadriplegic. The dad goes to his son as he gets that news, and he rushes to him in the hospital, and he begins to talk to him almost immediately about Jesus. And his son said, oh, I've, I've dealt with Jesus. And he had come back home through the experience of his suffering and he was restored to the church and today that father and that son would bless the Lord would praise the Lord for what he in love brought them through for the good of their souls Jesus chooses not to stop some things here I know that you are about to suffer And He does it to accomplish better things for His people. And that's the second thing I want you to see. And the third is this, and you see it in verse 9. In your English Bible, there's a parenthetical statement. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. (laughs) Jesus reminds them, and He gives them His perspective, that suffering can lead to spiritual strength. How would you respond 
if God made you physically disabled? How are you responding to the pains of your life now? Jesus says these things can make us strong in the Lord. I know that you don't have a buck, but you are rich in me. That's what he's saying. It's possible that what he's saying is your very circumstance of poverty has caused you to be deeply dependent upon me and you have become rich. Or your circumstances of poverty have shown you the poverty of this world and the poverty of your heart and the riches that I offer you. Now, it doesn't have to do that. It can, but it doesn't invariably do that. I boiled two things this week. Potatoes and eggs and the same pot of water hardens one and softens the other. One becomes tender and pliable. You can mash it. You can coat it with butter and it just melts in your mouth. And the other becomes stiff and hardened. So likewise, that same challenge can take the heart and... It can go one way or the other with us, depending upon how we respond by the grace of God. Have you grown bitter and resentful in your difficulty? Jesus can soften your heart. Or have you leaned on Him and found in Him your all in all? I walked a mile with pleasure said the poet. She chatted all the way. But she left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and there a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her. And sorrow walked with me. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And the servant is not above his master. And would we, would we find Him to be our all in all and discover that in Him we are rich. Now some of you who look at your life and think, I don't think I suffer much at all or ever have, you have a suspicion perhaps that your lack of suffering therefore inevitably causes you to lack in spiritual wealth. And that is not the case either. What do you do? If you look and say, I've lived a kind of charmed life. I don't mean you believe in charms, but God has been abundant to you in, you name it. And difficulty has been far from you. What do you do? Are you inevitably bound to being spiritually weak? Not necessarily. I think what you do is you take to heart 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a mouthful. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see what some people are saying, the highest form of spirituality is make yourself suffer. 
Stay away from the marriage bed because there's too much pleasure there. Stay away from certain foods because there's pleasure there. And the way to be really spiritual is to deny yourself all even good things that God has granted to you. And, and Paul says to Timothy, no, receive them with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is re- received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, what does this have to do with the subject of suffering? How do you receive blessing? It does not have to make you poor spiritually. You don't deserve those blessings, but you don't have to despise those blessings to grow either. And to do either, to despise or to imagine you deserve, is to make an idol of them. To make a god of them. But you put them in their place, he says. Put them in their place by being thankful to God for them. That keeps Him in His rightful place in your heart. And that is the place of spiritual strength where Jesus matters more to you than all. And all in Him you find. And so, Jesus counsels them with this perspective. And in the fourth place, verse 10, he says another thing. He assures them that all their sufferings will have an end. What could be more helpful and and hope-giving than knowing that suffering does end? And he highlights it in verse 10 when I believe he says it this way. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. There's great disagreement about the meaning of the phrase ten days. Is it a week and a half long? Does Jesus really mean ten literal 24-hour days and that's it? Or does Jesus mean some unspecified length of time that's either short, depending upon one commentator's reading of it, or long, because ten seems like a number of fullness and completeness and length, On the other hand, I haven't settled that out in my own heart, the meaning of the phrase 10, but it is a definite period of time, not indefinite and unending. In other words, Jesus knows the end of it. Not you are going to suffer and it's just going to keep on. But I know the end of it. And so when you're in a dark tunnel and it seems like there is no light at the end, you can despair. But if there's that glimmer of light at the end of that tunnel, you can go on. Jesus is encouraging them to go on. You and I need to put in eternal perspective the sorrows of this life. If if your everlasting life in Christ starts here and heads east, east, north, south, east, orienting your sanctuary here, mid-sermon. Draw an arrow to the sun, which is still in the east. By the time the sermon's over, it may not be. If that's eternity, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, wrap that back a billion times and you've just only begun. Imagine one year of your life is an inch. And every decade is just short of a foot. Then, then if God gives you eight decades, 
That's eight feet. You haven't left this building in your movement towards that sun. Paul says these these slight momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And though our outer nature is wasting away, yet our inner nature is being renewed day by day. So think about your life and your sufferings the way that Jesus does. There is an end to them. And it will not seem long when you have been standing in His presence for 10,000 years. Now there's one last thing. Jesus promises Christians that the worst suffering will never touch them. Verse 11, as He closes, He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He says, he says to them, I, I have to remind you that there are worse things than the sorrows of this life. There is, he says, the horror of the second death. And he says, I want you believers to contemplate that because that is not your destiny. That second death is not defined here, but it is at the end of the book. As in Revelation 20, John tells you that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into this lake of fire. And John says, Jesus says to us, and you are not going to taste that. Why? Because your name is written in the book of life. Why? Because Jesus died your second death. He's been there ahead of you. See, not only has Jesus been ahead of you in all your sufferings, Jesus has been much further into suffering than any who trust in Him will ever experience. Because Jesus suffered hell. He suffered on the cross, that lake of fire, that eternal separation from God, that God being against Him in wrath for sin. So that you might never taste that. The question is often asked, how are you? And lately I hear it more and more. I think it's great. How are you? Better than I deserve. John is saying, it gets so much better in glory you will never face the worst thing. And so my friends, we need to build our confidence that Jesus is for us and not against us by looking at the cross where He gave Himself for us and to see that He never takes you where He has not been, that He knows and can stop your sufferings, but in His wisdom and love, He's being good to you that He means to remind you of the spiritual riches you have in Him, that He knows the end of all your troubles, and that there is awaiting for you glory in His presence forevermore. And to be assured that He weeps with those who weep. 
that he will not break a bruised reed, that a lightly flickering candle he will not snuff out, that he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. May we find him to be just that for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless You for Your sympathy and Your counsel. Drive it home to our hearts, we pray, that we might taste and see that You are good. In Your name we pray. Amen.